Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Gene Barr, author of A Civil War Captain and His Lady. Gene Barr, author of A Civil War Captain and His Lady. How long have you been interested in the Civil War? Boy, that's a great question. And in reality, it's about a half a century. It started with a trip to Gettysburg uh, during a trip from grade school, older boy trip with church, actually. And uh, just, I don't know what it is, something sparked in me that day, literally 50 years ago, and that interest has continued. Do you read a lot of Gettysburg books? I do. have a lot of Gettysburg books. Living in this area, obviously, we're close and can make that connection and make that drive down. And it's just, it, it's, a, it's a special place when you think about the tragedy and the human stories that, that all revolve around that location. Do you have particular favorite authors? Boy, I tell you what, I think the one that got me probably, which I think is so common with everybody, Bruce Catton's works. At the, he's, his, he is so readable, yet he is still introducing and introduced in his a lot of real positive. And then as you go forward, um, what I use for this book, uh, a lot of James McPherson, very scholarly work, but there's a lot of people out there who are doing some great works these days. Your bio on the back flap says that you're involved in living history, Civil War living history. What does that mean? I was for years, that more commonly known as reenactments. I did a lot of those. I got involved in that uh, Boy, back in the late 70s when I still lived in Philadelphia and did a lot of that, got stayed involved in it when I was uh, moved to Georgia with a previous employer. So usually always, well not usually, always did Union, which made for an interesting time living in Atlanta, Georgia. I think it was me and three other guys, a little exaggeration, <laughs> but it was, uh, so I did that and it was uh, just a way of portraying the, the common soldier of the time. Can you talk about that experience? What's it like to do that? It gives you all of it. Obviously, you don't want to experience all of it. You don't want to experience getting live shot at. You don't want to experience starvation, but it gives you a little bit of an experience about what it's like to wear wool in 95 degrees in Northern Virginia in the summer. It's, uh, so, so it does some of that, the sights, the smells, the camaraderie with others who enjoy history as well. How purist were you about the, the <sighs> way the buttons were sewn yeah, on? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's, uh, there, there's that continual push back and forth. I think, you know, my view is that when you go out on the field and you're portraying a, a soldier from 1861, 62, you should do your absolute best within reason to, to make that as, as accurate as possible. Leave, leave behind any modern accoutrements, you know, modern wristwatches, eyewear, et cetera, and try and do the absolute best job you can with that. Are there the people who are the purists, absolute purists, and people who are good? stray from it a little bit and some people look down on other people? There is. There, there is unfortunately a lot of that and the term within the industry was FARB and it, there's a lot of question over the derivation of that term. People who are, and I've seen some who are completely inauthentic uh, and some who take it obviously to the complete extremes um, and you know when they when they go in for a weekend there's, there's no intrusion of the modern world in 
And uh, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of tension within the hobby. I've not done much of it recently, but it's interesting because it allowed me to participate in four different movies as an extra to get that experience. And that was, that was, that was fun to see. Which movies? I did uh, Glory, did Gettysburg, and did uh, Gods and Generals. And then the fourth one was a, a movie that few have ever seen, Champagne Charlie. It was one of those ones that unfortunately wasn't too authentic. And I went back, we filmed it in the late 80s when I lived in the South. I went back and looked and remembered there was this British actor who was there and never heard of the guy before. And we got to shoot him on set as part of the part of the whole deal went oh, back actually, and looked shoot, at shoot, it not film shoot we got to we got the film shoot I mean we, mm -hmm. we used we pointed our muskets at mm -hmm. him as one of the scenes and went back and looked turned out that the actor was Hugh Grant I've never seen this in any of Hugh Grant's <laughs> uh, film biography so I'm not sure you'll see that one but did you make the final cut do you see yourself yeah, in, in, in that movie? particular movie I did and some others I, I know I'm in this like in glory, I'm in a crowd of guys getting trampled by horses, so not the best way to be remembered on film, but it was fun anyway. Now your bio also says that you've been involved with the National Civil War Museum. For people who don't know what that is, what is it? Correct. It's the uh, only facility that's dedicated to telling the, the story of the American Civil War in an uh, un unpartisan manner on both sides. It's located here in Harrisburg. It's a phenomenal facility, beautiful facility. It's up in Reservoir Park been involved with the museum for a number of years. Uh, I was past chair, uh, still remain on the board. And it's a tremendous facility, great collection of artifacts, and it's used by scholars, and they've got a tremendous program of activities that continue. Now, people who watch PCN may recognize you from your day job, but for people yes. who don't, what's your day job? You know, in my day job, I'm president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry, and as you know, to have been fortunate to be engaged with all of you here at PCN over the years and be able to, to help uh, help you in the tremendous job that you guys do in educating the people of Pennsylvania and showing them the workings of government and public policy. So uh, the Pennsylvania Chamber is the largest broad-based business advocacy group in the Commonwealth. We have about 9,000 members and represent all kinds of businesses all across Pennsylvania from the largest you can think of down literally in certain cases to the, the small operation on the corner. Job keep you pretty busy? Job keeps me very busy, which is one of the reasons why this book took me 16 years to write. 16 years? <laughs> 16 years from start to finish. What was the moment that you said, I've got to write a book? Ah, boy, you know what? I, I was so fortunate with this because these letters that are the structure of the book fell into my lap. Somebody I knew had inherited these letters. They were found in an unheated cabin on a lake in Wisconsin. And a guy I used to work with when I was in the... Uh, oil industry. I was in the Pennsylvania office. He was Florida. We got to know each other. He said, I, I don't want them. I'd like you to help me sell them. When I saw what I had, I said, I can't sell them because I realized there was a story here that if it was sold, those letters would be broken up and the story would never, ever be told. And so I kind of said, yeah. And a friend of mine said, you got to buy these. So I wound up doing it. I was getting ready to send my oldest to private school to, off to college at the time. And I said, I don't know about this, but story had to be told. So I was fortunate enough that these fell into my lap and it didn't take a lot of looking to, to, to see that there was a story in the book here. Did, did you sit down and transcribe all of them? I transcribed every single letter, Brian, every single one. How many letters? There are 75 wartime and uh, I think about a dozen post-war letters. Uh, there's also a couple of other 
the female character, her father was a state senator from Peoria, so he wrote, when he traveled with the Illinois governor to see Grant on the Vicksburg campaign, he wrote a, a story about being with Grant, so that was part of it. The other main character, Josiah Moore, he wrote his history of the 17th, very brief few pages, but transcribed that as well. So that was the beginning. Transcribing the letters really kicked off the process and allowed me to see what was in there and what direction the book might take. What kind of shape were the letters in? Letters are actually in great shape. It was interesting. When I got them, somebody at some point, now these, had, these letters had been in this cabin for decades, but somebody at some point, it looked like maybe in the 60s or so, had taken them and put them into plastic sleeves and put them in a binder. First thing I did was, because I wasn't sure whether the sleeves were acid proof or not, and I didn't want the letters to deteriorate, I put them into acid free. But somebody at some point, they weren't just thrown into a box and strewn around, they, they were kept. Someone had made a point of keeping them. And so the letters were actually in pretty good shape. I've noted in the book where there were places that the words were illeg illegible, but not many places. Well, the letters themselves had to go through a lot because, first of all, it was paper that was in yes. the battlefield, and then it had to go through the mail in a wartime. Yes. But the other ones were the letters that she wrote to him that he kept through the war. Absolutely. And that was the one that is makes this that rare piece of literature, I think, which is, believe it or not, there's it's not uncommon to find soldier letters in the war. And this book, of course, is based on a correspondence between uh, a 27-year-old at the outset of the war, Josiah Moore, Captain 17th Illinois Company F, and a woman he meets in camp in Peoria, 19-year-old Jenny Lindsay. So they agree after this, you know, they go through the courtship rituals of, of 1860s America. Uh, they agree to exchange correspondence, and they do. But So there are a lot, believe it or not, a lot of soldier letters that come back, and the value of those letters depends on what the soldier describes. Was he at Gettysburg? Was it just a, hey, we're in camp today and it's raining? Uh, does he describe Vicksburg? Does he describe seeing President Lincoln somewhere? So that makes it valuable, but they're not uncommon. What is uncommon is, are the letters from home to the soldier, because in most cases, the soldier had no way of keeping them. They're campaigning, they're out in the weather. Now, as an officer, he probably had a few more opportunities to keep them, but what makes these extremely rare is the fact that you have the back and forth correspondence. There just isn't much of that. And you've got a couple of cases where you have a husband and wife who saved them, but this is a Victorian courtship and a relationship that develops in the Civil War through letters. How was the handwriting? Pretty good. Both of them were pretty literate people. He was a college student when he enlisted, 27-year-old college student. In fact, there, he certainly has a Pennsylvania tie. He was a student at Westminster uh, at one time, which is out in uh, near New Wilmington, and uh, he was. It was one. It was a prep school. So he was there in 1859. Went to Monmouth College in Illinois. So pretty literate. And she is the daughter of one of Peoria's leading citizens at the time, uh, a gentleman. Her father had been the Republican state legislator from Peoria, had been a member of the Whig Party. By the time 1862 rolls around, he's now a Democrat and running for the state Senate. Uh, so she's pretty well educated too. At certain points, the letters are a little tough to read. And I think hers particularly were, she would write on the letters and a couple of letters at once, you turn them sideways and then start writing over this way. So trying to decipher when the letters go in a different direction got to be a challenge. But the letters are, were, were, were in surprisingly good shape, given the age, 
the storage and the fact, of course, that some of these letters had been carried through Shiloh and Vicksburg and Fort Donaldson. So surprisingly good, surprisingly good. What did you get out of the writing style? Because one of the things that jumps out when you start reading them is the, the formality where uh, he addresses her as my dear lady and she addresses yes. him as my dear friend or uh, just as friend. Yes. So much of that is the, is the construction of the time, the, the culture of the time, how you communicate with somebody. And over, over the period of letters, and they run from uh, July of 1861, the wartime letters, until his discharge, so I guess there's a spoiler alert, he survives the war, in 1864, and hers back, except for the year of 1864, and I speculate in the, in the book about um, what, what happened to them. So you can see a, a bit of a change as it goes forward, as they become more familiar with each other, they become a little more affectionate, they become a little more intimate, which I think led to, you know, why her letters from 64 aren't, you know, aren't around and are, and are gone. There's no evidence that, that, uh, that they still exist. But you can see that, but you, but you see how people of the time spoke with each other through letters. Letters were an extremely important part of communication to people in the 1860s. In many cases, it was how you showed your social worth, how you were able to write. And so it was extremely important for them. And in the letters you'll see each of them sometimes apologizing. I apologize for this poor excuse for a letter. I apologize for, for going on and on. And it was a very, it was how they communicated. It was how they showed who they were. How graphic did Josiah get in his letters in describing the combat he was in? For her, not too much, which was pretty typical because a lot of times the men in the, in the army wanted to shield you know, the folks at home from this. I was struck by one of the letters in which Josiah, who was captain of his company, a company in the Civil War would start as 100 men. You'd put 10 companies together to make a regiment at the beginning of the war, so ostensibly a regiment was 1,000. They would quick, quickly be whittled down through either disease, desertion, or death in combat. And so uh, they would, by the end, by after a year or two, it's not uncommon to find regiments that were three and 400 men. So Josiah led at the outset of the war 100, and of course he, you know, he lost a few, but at the first, their first major battle, Fort Donaldson, one of the men in his company, who was also a student at Monmouth with him, had the top of his head carried away by a shell. So because the Army lacked a formal way of notifying families at the time, it usually fell to someone else to communicate that. So Josiah picked up his pen and paper and he wrote to the family of this particular individual. And he was fairly graphic. He would think he would say, I'm, you know, unfortunately your son is, you know, is past. I think the word he used, your, your noble son is no more. But he went on and described exactly how it happened, which, which struck me as a little bit, do you really want the family to know that? But a lot of times, and it varied, sometimes some men would react negatively when people at home would say, tell me more, give me more details. And you don't want to know details about what I'm going through. And I'm sure there's a lot of that today, too. I'm sure there's obviously quite a bit of that where people in the services who are still serving this country don't want the folks at home to know all the details about what they've seen. Were the letters censored at all? N not at all, uh, which is an interesting counter to what we had. In fact, as I was doing the book, I was reading some World War II works and saw how strict the censorship was, where they were, can't write this, and um, everything was looked at. Josiah was fairly open. In so fact, he would say, our, our troops are here. Our or troops are here. Yeah. We're sailing. We're getting on this boat. There's a few thousand of us. We're sailing on the Mississippi. We're going to do this. We're going to go attack here. Um, it was, there was virtually none. There was some interesting, some self-censorship. A couple of the letters had places, paragraphs that were deliberately cut out. 
I don't know when, where, whether Josiah wrote it and thought better of it or whether he said some negative comment about somebody back home and when it got home, Jenny decided that she would cut that part of the letter out or maybe decades later somebody said, oh, I don't want that out there. Why, you know, we still know the family. So some self-censorship, but no government censorship of the letters. They were free to pass back and forth through the mails. So you had a pile of letters and yes. you, the book is not just reprinting of the letters, but you have a lot of text around it. How did, how did you find out more about them as people? You know, Brian, that's a great, and I thought about this when I got these letters, and I knew that I didn't want to just publish the letters and let the reader think, okay, great, the letters are nice. And in many ways, the letters themselves function as poetry because the letters are beautifully written. And again, you can, if you want to see for yourself how the relationship developed. But I said, I didn't think that was enough. And I knew I wanted to put it in contact. So when, so when Josiah says, I'm at Pittsburgh Landing, which is Shiloh, what does that mean and how did he get there? And when other names pop up in those letters, obviously we talk a little bit about who that individual was and what their importance was. But as it, I kind of did the first couple cuts and I gave it to a former professor of mine at school, Randall Miller at St. Joe's University, who had some great suggestions because they're, they're both very religious people. So they talk about their religion. And uh, by going back and forth, I began to delve more into how reflective of this was was this of people's view of religion. And one author has described religion at the time as both wind and weather vane. It both blew their perceptions and colored their perceptions. Um, and so I looked at all of those. And you know, one of the things that I looked deeply at was what happened to men when they went in, not just let Josiah tell, but see how, how indicative his experience was. How did men change? You had these guys who were, his case, he was a student, uh, became a captain, but other people who were, who were ministers, they were teachers, they were, most were farmers, and clearly we had an agricultural society. But how did they change? And so I looked at other letters and other works that other, that uh, you know, historians had done, and there clearly was a difference. I mean, men went from being home and you know, adhering to, to social and community standards to where they're out killing and stealing, and you know, what did that do to men? And how did they, how did they transform? And then at the end of the book, how did they come back out of that? Could you tell how Josiah changed from his letters from before he had been in combat till after he had been through all those battles? You know, there was a bit. And the, the interesting part, Josiah got through fairly well, and we talk a little bit about that in the book. But um, his, his enmity and his, and his, his uh, uh, professed hatred of, of those on the other side, you could see ebb and flow. And it seems to reach a peak when, I guess during the Vicksburg campaign, he saw his men killed. He was, you know, they were going through sniper fire virtually every day on the, when they were on the front lines and they were on the front line. I think they rotated out every third day. It was a very difficult time. You could see it kind of ebb and flow. Um, from Jenny's perspective, you could, you could see a little bit. You could clearly see her concern for Josiah being in the service. She also had a brother who was in the service at the time. And so you could see her concern and her continually, can't you come home, can't you come home? So you, you can see a lot of that in there and you can, you can see the changes in the two. Um, Josiah didn't, uh, you know, again, he, he was a very learned person, very educated person. So you, you kind of saw that standard kept throughout the time and being an officer, and I think he was certainly more religious than many others of the time. He, he seemed to keep that and of course she, would encourage that, you know, she encouraged him to keep up his moral standards. And there's a lot of scholarly work now that talks about what, what role women did play, which was making sure that as men go through this, they, you know, they maintain that. 
Well, what did you find out about him as a person? I mean, what, where did he grow up? How did he get to be an officer? His He's education? an Irish immigrant, actually. Came here, as, I think he was about a year old, came out of the Northern Ireland section, Presbyterian. His family came here. Um, they came through Baltimore, came up, settled in Pittsburgh for a while, left. His father went out to Illinois, got some land. They put a cabin up in an area where there were still Native Americans and, uh, again, went to uh, seemed to be well-educated. Probably his father did pretty well. I couldn't find a whole lot on his father. I did find a book about this family in Ireland, which was interesting. They were from the town of Ballybay, uh, which is, I believe, Gaelic for at the Fort of the Birches. And so they seemed to do pretty well. He was pretty well-educated and um, by all accounts was, was well-regarded. He was elected captain of his, of his company at the time. He was elected? Uh, yes, he was it, it by the was, by the men. Your your own men not only elected the captain, they elected the major, the lieutenant colonel, and the colonel. That 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 went on until a little bit later in the war, until we realized this is probably not the best way to do it because there was a, a clear lack of men with military experience. I mean, you know, at this point, you, you're raising hundreds of thousands of men for the war on both sides, and the the standing army of the United States was extremely small. The Americans since the Revolution have this distaste for large standing armies thanks to a certain king during the Revolution. And so there weren't a lot. And so Josiah had no military experience at all. The reason he was elected was when they were raising the company in the days after Fort Sumter in 1861 when the war started, they were in a, a hall in the Monmouth, in the town of Monmouth, and I've certainly visited there a couple of times. And uh, they had 99 men who had enlisted for the war. And the man running the, who was running the meeting stood up and said, we need one man more. Well, Josiah, who was six foot four, stood up out of his chair and said, I'm that one man more. And according to the stories of the time, that so thrilled the people in the audience that they elected him captain. So that was, that, that was a justification for making him the leader of 100 men. Did he have political leanings one way or the other? He, he did not. There's an interesting view I found as part of the collection. The collection I got was not only letters, but it was photographs of the family, men in the unit, other things. There was a, a student newspaper from, um, uh, from the college out there that, from 1859, right after John Brown and he was hanged in West Virginia, in which Josiah professes some pretty strong abolitionist leanings which interestingly don't seem to arise in any of the letters during the Civil War. I don't know whether he changed his view, whether in communicating with Jenny because her father became a Democrat and what's known as a Peace Democrat or Copperhead, did not have a, a good liking for Lincoln, whether Josiah as part of the courtship process moderated his political views. There's not a whole lot in there, but from that expression of uh, sense of abolitionism in 1859, we don't see a whole lot. In fact, one of the letters, he, he uses racial slurs, unfortunately, which were not uncommon at the time because people, uh, you know, many, most people at the time didn't believe African Americans were the equal of, of others. So not a whole lot of evidence of, of his political leanings. He became a Presbyterian minister after the war and did not go into politics. So he certainly was a religious man. Now you do say that Peoria, the town they were from, uh, voted against Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and 1864. And correct. You know, Illinois was an interesting place. And uh, as I go out and give talks, even though I've studied the war for so many years, there was so much that, that I found in this that I didn't know. And I talk about the things that 
I thought I knew about the Civil War, things I was wrong about. One of the things is, I think the assumption that most people have is you have the North, you have the South, and many of us know that there were, quote, border states, states that stayed with the Union but had slaves, you know, Maryland, Kentucky, et cetera. But what's even more interesting is a state like Illinois, where the southern part of Illinois had strong influences and a lot of population that had moved into southern Illinois from southern states, that many of those advocated secession for parts of Illinois. Meanwhile, the northern part, which tended to be more immigrants, strongly allied with the Union. Peoria was kind of in the center. So they had pushed, they had pushes and pulls each way. And so you could see this very difficult and this, this real struggle politically within the state. In fact, to the extent that at one point, Governor Yates, the governor of Illinois, had to station troops in the capital at Springfield to keep peace because um, in 62, going into 63, the Democrats had taken over uh, and uh, things weren't going real well. Even in Pennsylvania, the outset of the war, Pennsylvania had a state Supreme Court justice who said, advocated redrawing the Mason-Dixon line and making Pennsylvania south of the Mason-Dixon line. And even an hour north of you know where we're sitting, there was a place called the Fishing Creek Confederacy. Uh, in which deserters and southern sympathizers had congregated and they had to send in the army to kind of go in and clear some of that out. What do you know about Jenny? Uh, Jenny, eight year difference between them when they met. I was, I think for me the thing that, that most took me back was the intelligence and the maturity demonstrated in letters for a 19 year old. And there's not a whole lot of evidence about her getting engaged in activities in the community during the years during the war. A lot of women did. And I think what happened is I think with her father's political leanings that certainly caused some, some issues within the community of Peoria, I think maybe she felt awkward going to some of these where her father was well known, in many cases wasn't well liked. He had a former law professor, I'm sorry, former law partner of his who enlisted, who was also a Democrat and they would have these violent clashes that the Peoria newspaper would talk about, violent clashes verbally. And uh, the Peoria newspaper, and they were divided up into Republican and Democrat. The Republican paper loved talking about how, how John Lindsay, her father, would be dressed down by this Colonel Robert Ingersoll. And uh, so I think she was felt a little bit awkward and wasn't quite sure. Certainly had a lot of anxiety, as I mentioned, about having Josiah in and having her brother in as part of the war as well. Any sign she was courted by anybody else while Josiah was away? You know, that's uh, interesting. There, there, there appears to have been another suitor in the regiment, a man named Abraham Ryan. Who, in the same regiment In the same Josiah. regiment, who was from Peoria, and, I, and the book has some background on Ryan. And uh, he, he appears at some point. There's nothing specific to, to, to indicate this, but just things mentioned in the letters from Josiah and from Jenny that, uh, in fact, I speculate because... In those days, you couldn't walk up to somebody, a male couldn't walk up and introduce himself to a female. That was rude. You, you, you could never do that. I, I speculate Abraham Ryan may have been the one who introduced the two of them. That was how you, you could do that in those days. But I think the evidence that Ryan either viewed himself as a suitor or Josiah thought he was because there's some read between the lines in some of the letters, you see that. And Jenny will from time to time when Josiah isn't coming back, I think he was away for about a year and a half. They didn't see each other from July of 61 for about 18 months. She would say things like, well, you know, geez, Abraham Ryan was here over, <laughs> over the break. How come you couldn't make it? And so I don't know whether she was throwing that in or whether or not he really was a suitor. But that was the only one that appeared to be the case. Any insights into her personality? 
tough to say because I think that, you know, unfortunately, you know, women of the time tended to you know, obviously try and stay in the background in many cases. Um, sometimes you can get, you know, a bit of a hint of that. Again, I think the thing that struck me was the maturity for someone of that age. Um, obviously very religious as well. Uh, strong family ties. She would go visit her sister who lived in Chicago. Um, but in terms of whether she was quiet, introspective, bubbly, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell from the letters because you can be one way in letters and obviously another way in, you know, in real life. It's hard to tell, but it's, you certainly see her change a little bit as, you know, as the war goes and, as, and of course, as she gets older. So Josiah's unit was the 17th yes. Illinois um, Infantry. Correct. What can you tell me about them? Well, it, there's not a history. One of the challenges I had, there's no, unlike many other of the more famous regiments, there's no regimental history of the unit. So I had to really dig around and find a lot of that on my own. Uh, they were raised in 1861 in the aftermath of Lincoln's call for troops to meet the rebellion. And so the 17th was obviously one of the first ones. Uh, uh, units obviously the first second, third would be the first units raised, so they were, they were up to the 17th. Consisted again of about a thousand men in total uh, that would be whittled down first because some couldn't pass the medical exam, and even the medical exams at the time weren't even all that rigorous. Um, as you, I'm sure you know, there were even a few women who managed to sneak through to show you that the, that the, uh, the doctors weren't doing their job in every case, and there, there weren't a whole lot of uh, there weren't a whole lot of requirements. You had to have at least two teeth in your mouth in order to serve. They had to be opposite because you had to chew the, had to bite the paper cartridge to charge your rifle musket. Um, but the uh, regiment was uh, formed. It was sent. His company was sent from Monmouth, where they assembled, to Peoria, and then aggregated with other companies, some from Peoria and some from other areas. So the a thousand men um, were all mustered in as the 17th Illinois. And I think it's another important note to talk a little bit about how men served in those days, because I think it certainly contributed to, to the issues that they saw. Today, if you enlist in any of the services, you, you might be in a company or a unit with somebody from California or Florida or Texas, et cetera, and you're from Pennsylvania. In those days, what would happen is 100 people would assemble and you would be serving literally with your brother, your cousin, your coworker, another student. Your father might be the captain. So when you went into battle, you would literally see people who you had grown up with, family members struck down, sometimes in the most horrific manner. So the 17th saw this. Uh, they would see their first action late in 1861. He was 27 when he signed up. He was 27 up. when was he, he enlisted. On the older side? He was on the older side. And, and, and of course, it was there was a wide range of ages in the American Civil War because so many men were needed, particularly on the southern side. And in fact, it was not uncommon to find men in their 40s and 50s who served, and even some a few older than that. When did he first see combat? First, his unit first saw combat at a little place called Fredericktown, uh, November, October, November 1861. He wasn't there, interestingly, because disease was so rampant in these camps back then. Josiah and many members of his company were struck down. He did not make it. The company was commanded by a lieutenant that day when they chased around a, a partisan or a guerrilla named uh, Jeff Thompson, who was former mayor of St. Louis of uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, I believe. So that was the unit's first fight. They uh, had some casualties. I believe there was only one casualty in his company, and there were one or two killed in the 17th. So that was, that was the first time. Interestingly, as I was doing research, and one of the things that I have is the original muster-in sheet for the company, giant sheet, size of, kind of the size of a table. Each of the men wrote name, 
their description, where they were from. Even though Josiah was born in Ireland, he said Illinois, and I'm thinking the nativist part of the time, he didn't want to tell people he was an immigrant, technically. So I'm looking down, I see the name James Earp in this, in this list. And I did some research wondering what if, it turns out, Wyatt Earp's brother was in Josiah's company. He was one of the ones wounded at the first battle of the war, and he was discharged. He never served again. He could never lift his arm up. And so he was discharged, and, and he went west. I did follow James a little bit with the story. He went west with Wyatt and Morgan and, and Virgil, but he was not at OK Corral, and I'm, I speculate it wasn't much good if you can't lift your arm up above a certain level in a gunfight. So Now, Ulysses Grant was in the hierarchy there somewhere. He was. Ulysses Grant was first a colonel, I believe the 21st Illinois. Of course, Grant had an interesting career, academy grad, went out to California, had issues with alcohol. Uh, the separation from his family played hard on his mind. Came back and was, was clerking in a leather goods store at the beginning of the war and uh, did enlist, was accepted and then rose fairly quickly. And Josiah and, and his regiment served under, under Moore, served under Grant for most of the war until they left. And of course, Grant came east to take over overall command of the armies. Another name that shows up in your book is Lou Wallace, Lou who Wallace. wrote Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, he did. Yeah, Wallace is in there. They never served directly under Wallace, but Wallace, as I recall, wrote uh, a, a description of their charge at Fort Donelson. Another one is William Tecumseh Sherman. Yeah, good old Cump, Uncle Billy, whatever word you want to use. People in the South have different words for him. Um, Sherman was there. Sherman was at Shiloh. Again, they never served directly under him. Um, but uh, Sherman, very interesting character. He, he and Grant were so inextricably tied and a lot of speculation over some of the, some of the way that, uh, that Sherman participated. Very, you know, mercuric, uh, but turned out to be clearly one of Grant's prime lieutenants. And uh, uh, Josiah and his men did serve under them during the Meridian Campaign in 1864, in which, you, as you look at that, and it was the first time I'd done a lot of work on Meridian, you really see Sherman's view of how to conduct war developing in the Meridian Campaign in early 1864 that he would employ later that year on the march to Atlanta and then from Atlanta out to the coast. Now, the, the regiment that, uh, that Josiah was in was involved in battles in what's considered the West. Exactly right? right. And do you find a lot more written about the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac than you find about written about the West? There is, and some of that is, of course, here we are, the popu you know, larger population centers, et cetera. People love Gettysburg. Under they love to read about Gettysburg. It has a tremendous attraction in Fredericksburg and Manassas and Antietam. Some of that is because there was more written about it from the soldiers. The soldiers tended to be a bit more literate in this area, therefore left more of their impressions. And of course, it tends to get more attention in this area because we are, we are in the middle of that. But the Western Campaign, it is, that doesn't mean California. What it means is pretty much everything west of the Pennsylvania-Ohio border. So during the Civil War, Ohio troops, Illinois troops, Indiana troops were called Western troops and tended to fight in those areas, although large numbers were actually here, you know, here at Gettysburg as well, you had a lot of, of troops from, uh, from Indiana, from Ohio, even some from Wisconsin and, and Michigan who served in, here in the east. You had some from Pennsylvania who served out in the western part. But they do get a little less attention, and uh, it, it's a bit more of a challenge when you look at that digging up some of the material. Not as much has been written about those. And for me, I was certainly more familiar having grown up in Pennsylvania, but I did have some some exposure to some of the Western having lived in Atlanta for a while. But the uh, 
the Fort Donaldson, the Shiloh, the Vicksburg, hadn't done as much research on that. So that required a good bit of research on my part to get that into the book and get that right. How critical were those battles to the eventual outcome of the war? Well, you know, Fort Donaldson was one that certainly it gave Ulysses Grant his nickname, Unconditional Surrender Grant, when he successfully took Henry and Donaldson. Henry was basically taken by the Navy, that much of a fight. Donaldson was a big battle, and really it was Josiah's first real battle. And for his regiment, it was the first one that showed them, unfortunately, what war was about. But there was almost a giddiness after Fort Donaldson with the North. Oh boy, we're gonna win, this is great. And then Shiloh really brought them back to earth in April of, of 62. Uh, you know, incredible. They had, you know, Grant took a lot of criticism because he said his army wasn't ready. He had some green troops in the front line under Prentice and Sherman and wasn't, you weren't ready for when the Confederates came out of the woods that day, overwhelmed the camps. And the descriptions of what happened in those camps and that day, absolutely incredible. And um, I think that that was an eye opener for so many, not only the soldiers, but the people in the North who said at the beginning of the war, each side assumed this is going to be three months. It'll be great. I want to go in and get my glory and, you know, get all the accolades. And they realized this is not going to go quickly and it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be a long, bloody struggle. As far as Vicksburg, arguably, we talked to historians, Vicksburg is probably as important as Gettysburg. Opening up the Mississippi River for traffic was probably as important as Gettysburg to the war effort. I have to read something that I found in here. You write about uh, Lieutenant Ephraim Dawes, an adjutant from the 53rd Ohio, and he was overseeing some troops who had not seen combat before. So he approached uh, a private William Varus of Josiah's company yes. who had had some experience. Dawes pleaded with him to co help calm his frightened Buckeyes. Varus instructed the raw Ohio soldiers, keep cool, shoot slow and aim low. And then he added, why, it's just like shooting squirrels, only these squirrels have guns, that's all. <laughs> there was a sense of humor among Civil War soldiers, obviously. Uh, that was an interesting quote, and when I looked at that, I did a little checking. Uh, Voris was, was noted, we talked about Bruce Catton. That quote is in one of Catton's books, but um, I believe he used the wrong name, Voris, and I found out that he was actually in Josiah's company. Uh, Voris, who's, and that quote has been used in other books as well, uh, died by the end of the war. He died of disease in a camp, I believe, in, 18, in a hospital in 1864. But one of the more interesting quotes from the battle. So the, the Battle of Shiloh, the, we mm -hmm. you just referred to that one, and you hear that sort of that name as a, a major thing, but can you describe what the battle was, how pivotal it was? Well, it was, it was the first major battle after the, the Union had captured Donaldson, and they're trying to drive further south and trying to drive towards the rail center at Corinth, Mississippi. Well, of course, they recognized how important that was. The Confederates recognized how important that was as well, so assembled their troops. And there was, again, Grant came in for a lot of criticism about being lax in terms of how he established his lines and security. And so the Confederates launched a counterattack there in April and drove on the first day, drove the Union back all the way, all the way back to the river. Uh, which, which was Pittsburgh Landing. And uh, they finally were able to, with the addition of fresh troops under Buell, bring that in and push the Confederates back again. But um, they certainly, the Union thought that after Donaldson, boy, this is just gonna be a few more weeks or another month or so, and this is over. And again, drove home to them that this is gonna be anything but easy, that they, each side was facing a very, very difficult foe. 
In fact, there's, a, there's an interesting quote after Donaldson from one of the Confederates who said it'd been, he'd been told that you know, every Confederate was the equal of 10 Yankees. And he said, after this battle, I've come to realize that that Yankee soldier is willing to give me all the fight that I'm willing to take. And so a lot of dawning of awareness happened on both sides after those battles. And you mentioned Fort Donaldson and Shiloh and Vicksburg. Was there fighting in between, or was those the three big There were some. There were some skirmishes. You would see some of those, some of them named, some of them not. It's one of those things where, you know, a lot of times you would be, you know, maybe sniping or marching to get somewhere. And this is one of the things that I think uh, um, people sometimes miss in the war. There's a lot of boredom in the war, too. In between battles, there's a lot of sitting around camp. Or as the men would say, we would drill a little and then we drill and then afterwards we would drill and in between drill we drill. Um, they had to keep the men occupied in certain ways. And so it was not a battle every day, whether it was east or west. There's a lot of difficulty living outside, particularly say the Vicksburg campaign. But they might there might be skirmishes or they might see Confederates or try and chase them or you know, vice versa, but not pitched battles every day. But there were, you know, skirmishes and again. Some of them named, some of them not. Some of them places where men died without the, you know, saying, I died at Gettysburg. You died at this little crossroads that, you know, people forget, unfortunately, now. How'd you go about researching all of this? Well, I, I've, I've got pretty good library, but still not enough that I, that, I, that I could use all that on my own. So, again, one of the reasons why it took 16 years, you know, did my day job and it's you know, a little demanding that, you know, we all have here, as you know. But I found what I had decided kind of what direction I wanted to take. And there's some phenomenal, phenomenal facilities. Went out here to Carlisle, to the Army Heritage Center, which is tremendous. Uh, the National Archive certainly was part of it. I traveled through Illinois to go to as many places that Josiah talked about. I went to Springfield, to their capital. What did they have on the 17th? I went to Peoria to see what they had, not only about Josiah, but about the family, the Lindsay family. What can I find out? Went through a lot of the microfilm in terms of newspapers there. I was also very fortunate to find the great-grandson of Josiah and Jenny, How who still lived. Well, uh, the guy who sold me the letters got a letter from, from David Jupe was his name. And he said, hey, I, you know, I, he I heard you inherited the cabin. He said, I'd like to get those letters that were there. Well, he already sold me the letters. And so um, he, I think he wanted them. But at the same time, after he and I talked, he realized something positive was going to be done with them. So he became a tremendous ally and a tremendous resource because he had already done a lot of family history. So he'd given me a lot of the family trees. He'd loaned me some, some of the pictures that are in the book. In fact, there's a picture in the book of he and his wife sitting on a love seat that, that family history has said that uh, this is a love seat that, that Josiah proposed to Jenny on. And so I was able to, to, to find him in suburban Chicago. Again, he was very, very helpful. And the really sad thing is that he died a few months before the book came out. He never saw it, he never saw it finalized. So I did a lot of that, traveled to Vicksburg. Uh, the then his chief historian at Vicksburg is a guy named Terry Winchell, who was a native Pennsylvanian from the Pittsburgh area who could not have been uh, more helpful. He has written his own books on Vicksburg, opened up, communicated back with me, answered my questions, uh, and tremendously helpful during my journey down to Vicksburg. And I think that's the other thing that you find in this. You find so many people who have such an appreciation for American history who are willing just to help to get the stories told so that people can better understand their history. And that, you know, n no, nothing other than I want to help you tell the story. And that's tremendously gratifying. And I'm very appreciative to so many people who are mentioned in the book about their work that they did to assist me in bringing this work to completion. 
When you go to Vicksburg, what do you see? I mean, this is this was a town, right? So it's probably it was changed a, town. a lot. It, it, it has Unlike Gettysburg, some. it's farms. Uh, it has changed. It's right on the well. It's right on the, on the Mississippi River, even though the course has changed somewhat, believe it or not, in the ensuing 150 years. I've seen most Civil War battlefields. Vicksburg is the most physically imposing of the Civil War battlefields I've visited. Each one has its own character. I mean, Gettysburg is always going to be Gettysburg. It's the largest battle of the war, three days. And Antietam, as strange as you can call this, is, I think, the, the prettiest battlefield. It's just visually appealing where it sits. Vicksburg, I think, is the most physically intimidating. It sits up on a bluff, and when the Confederates decided to reinforce it and sent John Pemberton, who was a Philadelphian, to command the garrison at Vicksburg, they put in extensive earthworks to cover because there was a road as well as a railroad that came in. And it was, it's intimidating. It's even today, it's intimidating when you see that simply some of the, some of the shrubs and trees have grown up over the entrenchments and the fortifications, but standing there and seeing where the 17th and the other units attacked on May 22nd, 1863. You just stand and shake your head when you see what they went up against. How preserved is that? Pretty well preserved. Um, Vicksburg has become a, a, a gaming town. There are some riverboat casinos and some in town, that, but the town has some, is pretty well preserved. There's some beautiful homes in the town. It's a great museum there. The old courthouse museum is there. And I, I got to spend pretty much just a full day in uh, in Vicksburg, after I did research at the, uh, the National Park Service site there, drove around a bit just to see it, and just to just to get a feel for what it looked like. And it's a it's it's a really neat town, really neat town. So there was an assault on Vicksburg that failed. There was May nineteenth was the first one. What happened was um, Vicksburg, sitting on on the on the river on the Mississippi, holds up all the river traffic. So farmers in the in the Midwest can't ship their products down to the Gulf to be sold. So it becomes an economic issue as well. And of course, Vicksburg sitting there, is, as was noted, I believe it was Jefferson Davis or someone said, the nail head that holds the two ends, the two halves of the Mississippi together, the east of the Mississippi and the west of the Mississippi for the Confederacy. And so Grant decides he's gonna take it. So he sends, uh, in late 1862, he makes a decision, he's gonna march overland and he's gonna send uh, Sherman against one part. Well, Grant's plans fall apart because his supply is uh, his supply depot is is attacked and overtaken by Confederates. So he basically calls off the attack. Unfortunately, Sherman doesn't get the notice and attacks at Chickasaw Bayou and is repulsed with heavy loss. Grant says, "I've got to do something here. We've got to take Vicksburg and we've got to move on this." So he takes his men. He lands them on the Louisiana side of the Mississippi. And Vicksburg is a little tough, it's, it's a tough place to get to because there's a lot of swamp and you really need to approach from the east side. But if you attempt to come overland, you're leaving your lines exposed. So long story short, after trying to dig, uh, you know, trenches, trying, tr trying to dig trenches and lines to get around in behind Vicksburg uh, because the, the western side is flooded during the winter, Grant finally succeeds in marching his men down the Louisiana side of the river, south of Vicksburg on the Louisiana side, and then takes uh, troop transports on the night in April, takes them down under the guns. Some of them are, but most of them get through. And Jenny's dad watches those, those troop transports go under the guns. He's with Grant on his aboard his headquarters ship, and that's written about in the book.
So Grant now has troop transports down there. He's got troops on the western side, ferries them over and begins the campaign to come in from the eastern side of Vicksburg. Uh, May 19th, there's the first assault against the works by Sherman. It's repulsed again with loss. May 22nd, Grant believes that uh, a more concentrated assault can work, launches a second assault against the works that the 17th participates in. That fails as well. And some of the stories that Josiah writes about, about his men and what happened are, you know, very compelling. And, uh, you know, again, real tragedy, uh, very, very difficult assault, very difficult assault for the, for the Union troops that day. So that was May 19th, 22nd. 19th was Sherman's, 22nd was when the 17th went in. But the city doesn't fall till July 4th. Correct. So what happens in What between? happens in between becomes siege. Grant says, I'm going to outcamp them, I'm going to siege them, and just begins to tighten the noose around the town. The Union Army completely encircles from north of town on the Mississippi all the way around to south of town again on the Mississippi and begins to starve out, unfortunately, the Confederates as well as the civilians in town. People turn to eating literally rats. They've, they've tunneled into caves in the hills of Mississippi to get around, to get away from the bombardment from Grant's gunboats as well as the field artillery that's in place around, around the town. And the, the town and its citizens and the army are slowly starving through June. It's also a very difficult time, although they're probably a little better fed, for the Union troops who are out in a, in a Mississippi summer without shelter for weeks on end and it, sniping begins. And the lines which started here, they begin to creep together. The Union starts digging trenches to get closer and closer and closer to there to where they can at some point hopefully make an assault. And at some point th those lines share a common wall. Those trenches share a common wall. Uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of very difficult time for both armies there in 1863. Did Josiah write to Jenny about what the experience he was like? He wrote about all of that. He wrote about all of that. And he, and there was an interesting experience that, that I've corroborated. Josiah talked about meeting the Confederates between the lines. And those who've read Civil War history seen from time to time that, of course, they're both Americans, that there are times when the battle's over and, you know, we'll go out and meet and they'll trade coffee for tobacco or they'll talk. And Josiah writes about that, and I corroborated that with a letter that was in the, in the Vicksburg Museum down there, as well as some, some other commentary from the man he potentially met, um, Captain Jones of the 38th Mississippi, I think, as I speculate, he could have been one of the ones Josiah was talking about because uh, Captain Jones certainly talked about that as well. So he, he does talk about meeting them in between. And I, I use that to talk a little bit about the, the kind of the, the irony of this, that each would sit, they would, they would hear, the, hear the religious services of each side at different points in the war and realize that they're both preaching the same thing and here we are fighting each other. You say that once Vicksburg fell, um, Grant made an agreement with the Confederates that the Confederates in Vicksburg would, the soldiers who were now POWs, would swear not to take up arms again until properly exchanged with Union prisoners. So yes. they weren't really put in a prison camp, they, they were just not promised not camp. to fight again. Grant kind of looked at that and said, gee, I could march them all north, but I'd have to detail men to take them back and I'd have to feed them. And he also knew that uh, these guys had, had probably had enough of war, so he, so he did parole them. They were exchanged. That is, you know, Union troops were sent back. By the end of the war, a lot of that 
policy on POWs changes, particularly when Grant gets east. But at that point, that's what he did. He knew so these guys promised had not a, to fight anymore. Promise not to fight anymore. And you know what? They, they, you know, by and large, men held to that. Uh, they would put their hands up. They'd swear to it, and they would hold to that. So they'd go home and they'd wait, and they'd, you know, they'd be notified that you know you've been exchanged. I have to ask you something else. Yeah, you're right about when the Emancipation Proclamation was announced. You say there's ample evidence that the Emancipation Proclamation contributed to the Army's morale problem for those in or close to the border states, and that would have included Illinois. A number of officers resigned over the order, while hundreds of enlisted men attempted to do so. Some did. It cut both ways in the Union Army. As, these, as you've indicated, there were some who were sympathetic to the South, thought slavery was fine, who when they saw this said, I don't want to be fighting for slaves. I never joined this army to do that. I, you know, and most men joined the army to preserve the Union. They didn't do that from slavery. And so they reacted negatively, as you note, particularly some of the Southern Illinois troops who um, left. I mean, officers could resign. Men, if men deserted, they of course ran the risk of being shot for their desertion. But there was one whole regiment that basically Grant discharged from the service and sent them back. I believe it was they were from Alton, Illinois, which was a hotbed of anti-abolitionist sentiment. On the other hand, there were many men who said, who weren't necessarily abolitionists, who said, finally, because now we're finally finding a way to bring the war to a quicker end because we've seen that the Confederacy uses slave labor as part of their efforts. They're digging trenches, they're providing support on the, you know, on the home front. So by liberating them, that is in those areas where the Union troops have, you know, have come, we're and anything that would end the war quicker, these men, even if they weren't necessarily in this to end slavery, were happy about it. Any sign of where Josiah came down on that? Not since that 1859 abolitionist. I mean, he he talked about it. Other than when he saw that they were they were enlisting black troops, he applauded that because he saw that it would work again, bring the war hopefully to a quicker end. They could bring themselves of a huge huge supply of manpower to bring these black troops in. He was very supportive of it. Some were not, but Josiah was one of those ones who certainly was supportive. And as you look at the war record of these black troops in various units, uh, they served with extreme distinction at various battles. You have this uh, student's journal, you mentioned 1859, and uh, Josiah wrote a poem about the death of John Brown. Death of John Brown. You found the newspaper. I did. It was in the collection. Someone saved it from that whole time. Now, uh, it was a little, that's that's a little worse for the wear. That was a little that was a little ragged after all those years. But uh, uh, John Brown was a guy who, in uh, I believe uh, October of 1859, took over the Union arsenal at Harper's Ferry. Uh, came in with his, and he was ardent uh, ardent abolitionist, and came in to take over Harper's Ferry, begin slave insurrection, etc. Uh, that effort failed. Uh, Brown was hanged in Charlestown, West Virginia, and of course that caused different views depending on your perspective. In the South, uh, Brown was viewed as an insurrectionist, as, as um, a wild man. In the North, among those who were abolitionists, he was viewed as a martyr and a hero. And so Josiah gives his take in the student newspaper on that. Interestingly, there's another piece in that same newspaper that kind of takes abolitionists to task for agitating and bringing uh, the, the U.S., the United States, closer to war with their efforts. It's uh, kind of two contrasting positions within the same, same student newspaper. You know, I hate to give away the ending, but you did uh, mention I earlier did already, that he survived I? the war. He did. And they get married. They get married within days of his discharge. And then very shortly thereafter, he leaves Jenny again 
and he goes back to Monmouth to complete his college degree and then stays in seminary school as well. He left while the war was still going on. He was, you know, and it's one of those other things that I never thought that much about. You, you always realize the end of the war, there's a lot of celebration, and I knew about what was called the Grand Review through Washington on day one in May of 1865. The Eastern troops paraded through right through downtown Washington, the Western troops the next day. They had to keep them separated because they, they didn't like each other either. There was, a lot of, there, was, there was a lot of conflict between Eastern and Western yeah. Union troops. And of course, um, Sherman didn't like Stanton either and didn't like some of the Eastern troops. So there was a, there, there was a lot, of, uh, um, lot of back and forth between those two. So they kept that separate. So I knew about the Grand Review. But what I didn't think about was, how about the guys who enlisted in 1861, enlisted for three years? And in 64, when the war was still going on, they were trying to get these men to re-enlist and they offered various inducements, a bounty, time to go home, a furlough, you could enlist and your unit could stay. You get a designation as a veteran unit. And of course, as I found out in the book, some of them were, were given some stronger incentives. As one said, uh, when he refused to re-enlist, he said, lager beer has lost its power of persuasion for me. So some opted not to. Josiah was one of the ones that opted not to, and most of the men in his unit opted not to go. So I look at other quotes from other men who say, hey, you know what? I've, I've done enough. I've done my three years. There's plenty of patriotism on the side of others at home who can come down and fight this war now. So they went home justifiably believing they had done their job. But I thought, how do they feel when they go home and all they get is kind of like, okay, yeah, it's good to see you. Thanks for being back. But no real celebrations. I mean, there's some evidence that maybe at the 4th of July they, these guys were celebrated, but the war's still going on. Thousands and thousands of men are still dying in places, particularly in Grant's Overland campaign in 1864. And how do these guys view that? Then how do they view it in 65 when all of a sudden the war is over and these, some, some men who might have only served a year are coming back and they're being celebrated? And I think, to speculate a little bit, how did how Josiah and the others feel about that? Did they feel resentful that maybe they didn't get their just due from their efforts? And it leads to you know, some interesting interesting thoughts about that. You mentioned meeting Josiah and Jenny's great-grandson. Yes. Do they have any living descendants? There are. And it's funny, since the book has come out, I've seen, uh, I've been contacted by some. Hey, I saw your book. I'm a great-great-grandson, great-great-granddaughter, great-great-niece. And it's been great to hear from them and because they're, they're so interested in the story. Some of them didn't even know they were related to each other. Some of them didn't know where the others were. So it's been great to hear all that and to see the, the interest that the book has generated among people. Now, you said that this book took 16 years. Are you absolutely cured of writing another book, or, or have you caught the bug? I don't know that I've caught the bug. There, there, there may be one more out there. We'll have to see. I, you know, again, it might be, a, probably could take some time off to think a little bit about what that means. But it was, and I wanted to make sure, part of the reason for 16 was, again, you know, we, we all have, you know, these full-time day jobs that occupy our time. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that I got the research right. I knew that this was in many cases, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm never going to get, probably never going to get something like this again where I just find this. So I said, I want to make sure that it's right. I don't want somebody picking up and going, boy, he was really off on Vicksburg, or this was completely wrong, or, you know, he didn't use the, you know, all the correct citations. When I did this, the, you know, the publisher said, you know, your footnotes are a little off. I said, well, it's been 40 years since I had to do footnotes, so you have to be, <laughs> you have to be a little light on me. <laughs> We've been speaking with Gene Barr. He is the author of this book, A Civil War Captain and His Lady, Love, Courtship, and Combat from Fort Donelson through the Vicksburg Campaign. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.